The show is positively magnetic. That's this week's Planetary Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Kaplan. They may be the smallest and least complex instruments on the Mars Exploration Rovers, but a handful of magnets are returning real science in concert with the other players on Spirit and Opportunity. We'll learn more about them in a minute. We'll also hear from Bruce Betts with What's Up and our newest trivia contest. From What's Up to a Heads Up about next week, Ray Bradbury returns to our little program. We'll bring you the legendary writer's inspiring and sometimes hilarious remarks at last week's celebration of Yuri's Night in Los Angeles. Be sure to join us because you won't hear this anywhere but here. And here's another Planetary Radio exclusive. Take it away, Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, I've heard that Mercury is both the hottest and the coldest place in the solar system. How is this possible given Mercury's proximity to the sun? Although Mercury is neither the hottest nor the coldest place, it's quite true that it's a planet of extremes. It's easy to understand why Mercury is hot, since it's the closest planet to the sun. Occasionally, the sun, as viewed from Mercury, is three times as big as it looks from Earth, meaning that the sun is ten times as powerful. Daytime temperatures on Mercury can reach 430 degrees Celsius, or 800 Fahrenheit. Only Venus is hotter because of its runaway greenhouse effect. So how can Mercury also be one of the coldest places? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out. Walter Goetz is the Magnet Dude. Well, that's what the student astronauts called him. And it's an appropriate nickname. His team is responsible for the collection of carefully prepared and monitored magnets that occupy some prime real estate on the two Mars exploration rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. Born in Germany and with a Ph.D. earned in Denmark, Walter has been a happy member of the MER team at the Jet Propulsion Lab near Pasadena, California. He appeared to be even happier at the party the Planetary Society recently threw for the triumphant scientists and engineers. As you'll hear, the festivities continued all around us as he described his magnets and their role on the Red Planet. We have been making magnets for uh, Mars Polar Lander, then for uh, Mars Lander 2000. Uh, no, it was the 2001 Lander, sorry. And then Mars Exploration Rovers. This is one of the few projects, instruments on the Mars Exploration Rovers that we have not managed to cover yet, which is surprising because this is a project that the Planetary Society is actually involved with. What makes these magnets special? We could also ask what, what, are, what is special with the magnets on Pathfinder. The special thing with the magnets on Pathfinder is that they were different from the earlier Viking magnets. They were very different in strength and uh, this is really a, a greatly refined version of the Viking experiment, the, the Pathfinder experiment. What is special with the magnets on the Mars Exploration Rovers is uh, the main goal is not observation 
of the accumulation of dust with the cameras. Uh-huh. The main goal is actually IDD work on the magnets. This means uh, different kinds of spectroscopy of dust exploration of uh, or investigation of the dust by the means of different kinds of spectroscopy. And you said IDD. Yes, this means uh, instrument deployment device. So you obviously know the characteristics of these magnets extremely well. Yes, uh, d- uh, definitely. I have been uh, very much involved in, the, in manufacturing this mag- these magnets. This is a precision device also. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, for instance, the surface is flat within a few microns mm-hmm. and uh, it has been glass bit blasted in a very controlled way so that uh, the magnets have controlled optical properties. We, Of course, we still observe the accumulation of dust on the magnets by the means of cameras, mm-hmm. but uh, the, the main idea is really to get the chemical analysis of the dust, of the magnetic part of the dust, which is ac- accumulates on the magnets. And so I assume then that the dust is examined by the spectrometers on the rover. Yes, it is examined by the um, uh, alpha proton X-ray spectrometer, which yes. does me- measure the chemical composition of the dust. And then we also want to uh, investigate the dust by the means of Musbauer spectroscopy. Musbauer spectroscopy t- tells us something about the ion mineral- mineralogy of the dust. But uh, we have to wait more to get decent spectra from Musbauer spectroscopy. The mission has to survive. We need to, to wait uh, until enough dust has accumulated on the magnets. And then we can also study it by Musbauer spectroscopy. This will be very important. Even though it's not the core of this particular experiment, that is to basically measure the amount of dust, magnetic particles that collect on the magnet, uh, what are you seeing, what kind of data are you gathering about the amount and, for that matter, maybe the quality of that dust? We are mainly working with airborne dust because these magnets are exposed to the the air and to the dust-filled atmosphere. We can uh, compare MUR-A airborne dust Uh, spirit airborne dust to opportunity airborne dust. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. And we do that. The the differences are are very small, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And we also compare it to to mass pathfinder airborne dust. It looks that the the airborne dust is rather uniform. Around the planet? Yes, around the planet. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we also compare the accumulation rate, how fast it accumulates. Mm And uh, this is a measure of how much dust is near the surface. Uh, This quantity can then be compared to the so-called opacity of the atmosphere, uh, where uh, atmospheric scientists look all the way through an atmospheric column Mm -hmm. and determine how much light is absorbed or scattered out of the pathway. This is also a measurement of of the amount of dust in the atmosphere, but it refers to the whole atmosphere to the entire atmospheric column, whereas we are uh, gathering dust from the... uh, Very very near the surface. Yes, exactly. This would seem to be of of enormous interest to many uh, atmospheric scientists on Mars, and for that matter, those who are doing remote sensing of Mars from from orbit. I would think uh, they'd have to take it into account in evaluating their data. Yes, it, is, it has to be uh, put, put together, yes. But it is just like uh, atmospheric studies. You, can, you do not, when you, when you measure the tau uh, for one day, it's not interesting, it's just one point. The interesting thing is to, uh, to get um, frequent observations and study it over a long period of time. You said tau. 
Yes, sorry, tau is the, uh, the dust opacity. The larger tau is, the more light, think about a beam of light emitted by the sun propagating through the Martian atmosphere until it hits the surface of Mars. Part of this light, incident light is scattered out of the way due to uh, uh, scattering of light on particles. Part of the light is absorbed. Which is certainly something anyone who has sat inside a, a slightly dusty house on Earth and watched a shaft of sunlight, watch the dust pass through that yes. uh, shaft of sunlight. Or, or if there's a smoker in the family, you can see a scattering of light, the, the small particles, micron-sized particles from the smoke, the cigarette smoke. Yeah. Which leads me to another question. What do we know now about the amount of dust in the Martian atmosphere as compared to... Uh, a typical site on Earth. I don't know what a typical site on Earth would be. Oh, yeah, it's a very interesting question. Um, first, it certainly depends on the region where you are on Earth. Mars is extremely interesting, but uh, the Earth is uh, a planet which is much more heterogeneous. Yes, there's much diverse. more. There's much. It's much more diverse, exactly. In the Sahara, you certainly would have um, a larger amount of airborne dust uh, um, than, uh, let's say, on an island uh, in South somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. By the way, dust particles from the Sahara, they are transported, and also small sun-sized particles are transported over thousands of kilometers, mm. and you can uh, prove that. Mm -hmm. So they are also distributed over a large region of, of the Earth. But still, uh, you have the kind of dust which you would find suspended in the atmosphere will be very different. Uh, for instance, in, an, in a desert-like region or in, uh, near an ocean. So actually difficult to compare because Mars is yes. as fascinating as it is. It's much more uniform than the Earth. I exactly. It's much more uniform. But it's an unknown world, so therefore it's extremely interesting. And tremendously exciting, and yes. It is, and it is the planet which is closest to the Earth. If you average over all any kinds of properties, uh, except the biosphere maybe, <laughs> then Mars is still uh, remains the, the planet which is closest to the Earth. When we return, Walter Goetz will tell us more about his Martian magnets including what they're made of. Please stay with us. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. You can learn about these adventures and exciting new discoveries from space exploration in the Planetary Report. The Planetary Report is the Society's full-color magazine. It's just one of many member benefits. You can learn more by calling 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. And you can catch up on space exploration news and developments at our exciting and informative website, planetarysociety.org. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Planetary Radio continues. Let's rejoin scientist Walter Goetz at the recent Planetary Society party honoring the Mars Exploration Rover team. I just realized I hadn't asked him a fairly obvious question about his attractive little devices. What is the magnet actually made of? Is it an alloy? Does it have rare earths? Uh, yeah, good question. This It's different. Um, we have, uh, in, in total, we have uh, seven magnets on each rover. And then we have uh, two astrobots 
uh, one astropod, of course, well, this is your We know them yeah. well, yes. <laughs> but um, we call them our astropods, but these are actually your astropods. No, please share them with us. <laughs> But these these magnets are differently made. Uh, for instance, we have a magnet near the near the calibration target on the rear side of the rover, and this is this is a very strong ring magnet, about um, one fourth of a millimeter below the top surface is placed the the permanent magnet, which is made of samarium cobalt. This is a ring magnet, an extremely strong ring magnet uh, at As I said before, 0.4 millimeters below the aluminum surface. So this means you cannot see the magnet from outside, but um, it creates a magnetic field. Uh, these field lines, they can traverse uh, aluminum without sure. problems, and uh, therefore uh, dust is accumulated on the surface. I think of anybody who's played with iron filings through a piece of paper with a magnet underneath. Yes, and, and then we have other magnets which are supposed to be um, investigated by the instrument deployment device, by the robotic arm, mm -hmm. which carries the Mussbauer um, spectrometer, and also the... A the a microscopic imager and yes. uh, so many of the other instruments. Yes, uh -huh. and uh, the Mussbauer spectrometer has to uh, look for the iron mineralogy in the dust. Mm -hmm. So we, do, we wouldn't like to put iron in, in the magnets in any way because we only want to see the iron which is in the Martian dust, mm -hmm. not the iron which we bring along. So therefore, uh, the magnets in front of the, uh, the camera mast designed to be studied by the robotic arm, is made of ultra-pure aluminum, 99.999% uh, aluminum. This is uh, at least the, the top layer of, uh, uh, of, this, of the aluminum, uh, aluminum housing is ultra-pure aluminum. Because any aluminum you use in today's world contains about 1% of iron. And you could very easily see it with Mussbauer spectrometer. I can sure. tell you we were very, uh, uh, when we started to develop these magnets, we of course we used ordinary aluminum. We were very astonished that we saw a beautiful iron peak uh, <laughs> after a few hours of um, uh, integration. So we had to buy extremely expensive aluminum, which is by the way very um, soft. Uh, it's not pleasant for uh, technicians to work with pure aluminum. but And Not typically what you'd want to make a, a, a Mars rover out of, I imagine. Exactly, yeah, exactly. But uh, here it was very important so that we get, uh, so we get only signal from the iron in the Martian dust. Really, as we've been talking, the party has kind of uh, almost come to an end around us, and I haven't let you drink, uh, I haven't let you finish your beer. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I... I uh, oh, you already did finish. I, I enjoyed to talk to you. <laughs> no, I did too, and then, as I said, this is the first chance we've ever had to talk yeah. about the magnet uh, <laughs> experiment on the Mars Exploration Rovers. When do you expect that you might be getting back more of the spectroscopic data that you said that you have to be patient about? We have already got uh, data back from the, uh, from the magnets. They look much like the airborne dust we have, we, we knew from Mars Pathfinder, Mars Pathfinder. So far we already got that there is, um, uh, it, this dust has the properties which we expect, but uh, in order to uh, study fine 
very fine difference between, for instance, spirit and opportunity. This takes long time. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, very roughly speaking, it has the properties which we know, which we have been, which we did, did expect. By the way, we have also four other magnets. I just want to mention them briefly. They are on the bottom of the rock abrasion tool. And while we grind uh, um, a hole into the rock, a dust plume made of rock powder, not of airborne dust, but of rock powder, mm -hmm. is produced and the magnetic part is attracted to these magnets. And uh, we have also very interesting results from, th from these magnets, actually. And uh, it's a huge difference uh, between um, spirit and opportunity. Really? Now that's fascinating. Yes, uh, it is. Um, uh, we did accumulate a huge amount of magnetic material on both rovers, mm -hmm. but uh, the, the material on the rock abrasion tool magnets, on spirit, they are just black. Black like a magnetite, uh -huh. um, which is a common mag magnetic material on Earth. But uh, the other one is a bright red, very intensely red. From Meridiani? Yes. So it reflects them, of course it reflects the mineralogy of the rock, but it also tells us something about the amount of strongly magne magnetic material uh, in the rock. And this is of course a support for Müsbauer, uh, for the interpretation of the other um, spectra we have um, on board. For instance, we, we believe there is mechemite, an, another magnetic material, in the, uh, in the dust, in the rock powder. We suggest to the other spectroscopists to, uh, to take that into con consideration if they can better fit their spectra and so on. So clearly, these little magnets are very much playing their part in sort of a symphony of instrumentation on the Mars Exploration rovers. Yeah, that's, that's right. It is uh, it's quite unique in that sense that uh, the magnets are involved uh, or um, play together with most of the other instruments. Play together, I like that. <laughs> well, we'll and let we you. All, we play also together, the scientists, yeah. <laughs> and, and we will let you finish playing here tonight at this party. Thank yeah. you very much for talking to us, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing about more data from those magnets on the rovers. With, with pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. Walter Goetz continues to monitor the Mars Exploration Rover magnets. Check our website at planetary.org/radio for the link to a brief overview of the work underway. I'll be back with Bruce Betts right after this return visit from Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. It's easy to see that Mercury can be hot, but how can it also be cold when it's the closest planet to the sun? The answer is that Mercury spins very slowly. It spins so slowly, in fact, that it takes two of Mercury's years, or 176 Earth days, for one solar day to pass on Mercury. So any place on the surface receives daylight for 88 Earth days, followed by a night lasting another 88 days. Without an insulating atmosphere, once the sun sets, Mercury can't hang on to its incredible heat. Nighttime lows on Mercury can reach minus 180 degrees Celsius, or minus 300 Fahrenheit. It's not the coldest place in the solar system, but Mercury's daily temperature variation of over 600 degrees Celsius, or over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, is truly extraordinary. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio.
almost the end of this week's Planetary Radio, so it must be time for What's Up. And uh, sure enough, Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects, joins us in the Planetary Society headquarters. They, what do you call this area, anyway, that we're sitting in today? <clears throat> this would be the uh, the guest's lounge. The guest lounge? No, it's, it's not. <laughs> it's the living room of the, the original house. The former residence, right? It's quite a place. Uh, we'll have to, you know, give people a radio tour of the headquarters sometime. What is it, a 1902? Uh, 1903. 1903 Craftsman? By, yeah, Craftsman House, designed by Green and Green. Yeah. Well, folks, uh, right. drop into Pasadena, and we'll, uh, we'll show you around. What do you got for us this week? <laughs> but in the meantime, look up in the night sky and see Venus in the evening, right after sunset, still really, really bright over there in the east. You'll see the moon, the crescent moon, right near Venus on April 22nd. And then the following evening... The moon will climb up and be right next to Mars. Mars is to the upper left of Venus these days, but really getting very close to it, only six degrees apart, only six degrees of separation right there <laughs> between those two. So look up in the and and look for Mars uh, to the to the upper left of Venus. <laughs> six degrees. Really want to say it's, something? It's a universal constant, six yeah. degrees. It's, it is indeed. <laughs> if you look to the upper left of Mars, you'll see Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> no, not actually. He'll explain later. I'll explain later. I'm sorry. We have my son Daniel here. He's a little perplexed. Continue to look. To the upper left, you will see Saturn nearly overhead at sunset. A little bit farther over, bending towards the west, you will see Jupiter extremely bright. So four great naked eye planets. Kevin, Kevin Bacon did play an Apollo astronaut. <laughs> and Apollo astronauts went to the moon. Ooh. <laughs> and the moon will be in the night sky. All right, go wow, on. Wow, that's only like three. <laughs> anyway, moving on to this week in space history. On April 19th of 1971, Salyut 1 was launched, the world's first space station. Moving on to random space fact. We're going to get solar once again. On the sun, sunspots appear dark, but it's actually because they are cooler than their surroundings. And so even though they are still bright, still hot, they appear darker because of their lower temperature. That's why you can see sunspots. I was always amazed by that as a kid because I had heard this. Uh, we've, we've known this for a long time. But I thought, boy, they must be like cold compared to the rest of the sun. Not really, right? They're still pretty hot. They're still pretty hot. You could still toast some serious marshmallows from... <laughs> Several million miles away over those puppies. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, Daniel's here right because of the trivia contest. <laughs> he is indeed. Okay. Dean. But we should go through last week's contest. First. All right. Last week's contest, we asked you, what was the success criterion for each of the Mars Exploration rovers in terms of distance traveled? They had to last 90 days to be considered a success in that aspect. What about 90 Martian days? What about what distance they had to travel? What did people say? This is the equivalent to 12-month, 12,000-mile, and this is the mile <laughs> part of it. Uh, we had a lot of entries, and, you know, I, I say that it's a cliché thing uh, here because I say it every week, but it's true. We're getting our people who enter every week, and we get new people every week. And I want to let you new folks know, you know, hang in there, hang in there. Uh, we're, we're not that big a show yet that, you know, we've got uh, 15,000 entries coming in. Every, everybody probably gets a chance to win eventually if you have the right answer. And the right answer this week came from, Bjorn Isaacson. It's another one of our international listeners on the web. Bjorn Isaacson of Norway said that the Murr rovers had a mission success requirement to go 600 meters per odometric count. And he adds, meaning they could turn a lot in place 
and meet that objective. I guess they can just kind of, you know, spin on a dime, which they can do, and that counts. So, Bjorn. Subtlety I was not aware of. Thank you, Bjorn. Yes, so success. Rovers, success. They're successful. Great. He will get a Planetary Radio t-shirt for this week. We'd love you to enter our contest. Go to planetary.org slash radio and answer the following question, which is having once again to do with the sun, the object of choice, randomly chosen by my son, Daniel. Who's holding his breath at the moment. <laughs> Until I get the trivia He's... question out. I've got to hurry. <laughs> this is another tricky one to phrase, but every star in the sky, astronomers get bored, and they've categorized them all using letters. What letter category is our sun in stellar classifications? What letter is it? A class what? So this is, this is not Star Trek stuff. This is what astronomers actually use to classify the different types of stars. I assume where they are on that thing called the, the main sequence, right? I Indeed. faintly remember that from on astronomy or off the class. main sequence, yes, yes, yes um, in terms of their, their temperature, color, things like that. You told people out, Andrew, they go to the website, and we will tell them, please let us know. Uh, get it to us by Thursday noon Pacific time. It's noon here, and it should be where you are, too, but uh, noon on Thursday is, <laughs> is the deadline. <laughs> and do you have anything else to add? I just want to encourage everyone to go out there, look up in the night sky. Hey, Daniel, what should people think about? When they look up in the night sky, what do you think? How the sun was made. All right, go out, look up in the night sky, think about how the sun was made. Thank you, and good night. Bruce Betts and Son here uh, at the Planetary Society, where we do What's Up whenever we can, and always at the end of this show, Planetary Radio. Bruce is the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society and joins us each week. That's it for this week. Join us next time for Ray Bradbury and more from the April 12 celebration of Yuri's Night. Take care, everyone.